This is The Guardian. The government is this week locked in a high-stakes legal battle with the official COVID inquiry over whether it has to disclose Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages and diaries in full. Rishi Sunak is holding firm. We want to make sure that whatever lessons there are to be learned are learned, and we do that in a spirit of transparency and, and candour. But his opponents are gunning for him. I think the Prime Minister looks really slippery today. One minute the government says that the messages they have are immaterial, the next minute they're saying they don't exist. Well, which is it? Where does the political infighting leave the bereaved families who lost loved ones to COVID? I'm Gabby Hinsliff. In for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the Conservative peer and former Downing Street Chief of Staff, Gavin Barwell, and Nazir Afsal, Chancellor of the University of Manchester, and formerly Chief Prosecutor with CPS in the northwest of England, and author of His Memoirs, The Race to the Top. Hello, both. Good day to you. Afternoon, Gavin. <laughs> Now, before we talk about the week's uh, big stories, we've had weeks now of apocalyptic warnings of the impact that AI could have on us all and on our jobs. Can you imagine a day when AI will do your job entirely? Gavin, do you, do you think the Maybot could ever have been replaced by a, a real robot? <laughs> would that be going too far? I think Teresa is irreplaceable. <laughs> but I think that I think a lot of what I suspect we're going to find over the, the course of the, our lifetimes that a lot of what we do is going to be able to be replaced by this technology. And that's going to lead to a pretty profound debate about what we all then do with our lives and incomes and taxes and how the state funds itself. The speed at which this technology is advancing is incredible. I was talking to somebody the other day who runs a company that is, is developing this technology. And this person was saying that they're struggling to keep up with what their actual people on the ground are doing in terms of the pace of the advance. So if they're struggling with that, then policymakers and regulators are much more so. Mm. What about you, Nazir? Do you think, or does it have a role in the law? What what bits of law would I mean, be? I actually asked Chat GBT a few weeks ago whether or not um, uh, it could AI could replace judges, and it came back and said no. Mm. It said that you know judges, human beings have empathy, have sensitivity, humanity. I, mean, I don't know any judges, obviously, uh, and <laughs> as a result, they don't feel Chat GBT doesn't feel that AI could replace judges. So that was quite an interesting conversation. It might just be lulling us into a false sense of security. That's what you yeah. would say if you wanted to take over the world. Today, we'll be talking about the, the COVID inquiry currently engulfed in Tory political infighting. Will it deliver what bereaved families want? And secondly, new research shows millennials are the first generation not to become more conservative as they age. But they don't necessarily look like typical Labour voters of old either. So what do the major political parties have to offer? But first, we're going to deal with the COVID inquiry. We are recording this at midday on Wednesday, a day before the deadline, uh, set in theory anyway, by the inquiry's chair, Lady Hallett, for the Cabinet Office to hand over unredacted notes made by Boris Johnson during the pandemic and WhatsApp messages between him and up to 40 other ministers and officials or else face criminal sanctions. There's been confusion about where some of this material even is, with, with Johnson saying he's handed everything to government lawyers and the Cabinet Office saying it may not have access to everything. But what's clear is that government is digging its heels in, insisting that some of this material is private and personal with no bearing on COVID decisions, but Lady Hallett seemingly wants to make up her own mind about what is and isn't relevant. With the Johnson camp screaming, stitch up all the old feuds within the Conservative Party are resurfacing. But if you 
I was thinking the other week, if you lost your mum to COVID, seeing the inquiry descend into yet another episode of Tory psychodrama must be infuriating. Weren't the people we lost to COVID meant to be at the heart of all this? It's a strange kind of weariness to the public debate about the inquiry too, as if lots of people would rather move on and forget. So we wanted to start today by reminding ourselves why this inquiry matters. Nazir, your older brother died of COVID in, in 2020. Can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances in which he died and, and what you hope the inquiry will achieve for families like yours? Um, it was um, the second week of the first lockdown. So it was the beginning of April 2020. He lived alone in Birmingham. I live in Manchester. And uh, he, my mother, who was seriously ill at the time, she passed away three months later. But she, he'd obviously been to visit her in hospital. And I imagine, we, we guess, that he picked up COVID uh, in hospital in March of 2020. As you probably know, there was no testing after the 12th of March in the community. Uh, and then um, he got seriously ill. He went into A&E on the 1st of April and they tested him then but sent him home because they had no space uh, in the hospitals. And a week later, he didn't wake up. I was absolutely shocked. I mean, he was my oldest brother, but he was only five years older than me. And more importantly, he was um, in health, good health. And there was no concern, no issue that he might suffer in this way. I looked at the law, which is what you should do. Uh, and it didn't prevent me from going down uh, to where he was. I arranged an undertaker for him, Gabby. And the undertaker, because he died at home, wouldn't come into the house and gave me and my other brothers a body bag. And so we went upstairs uh, and put him in the body bag and carried him down the stairs and put him onto the uh, trolley that the undertaker had outside. The under this was the middle of the afternoon and the undertaker was in tears because it was the 14th mm. body he picked up from home that day. And he normally picks up one a day. Gosh. Uh, and my mother, who I just mentioned was seriously ill, she was on an oxygen tank. She wanted one last look at her son. And so I unzipped the body bag so she could see his face. And then I went back to Manchester. By the way, we were all PPE'd and everything. Went back to Manchester and I couldn't go to his funeral because we all know the rules uh, were a maximum of six. When my rest of my family did, uh, and they were told after 29 minutes and 30 seconds they had to leave because the next family had to bury theirs. Once I'd been through that process, and, and I think I say it three years on, I still don't think we've mourned that loss. Uh, and my mother passed away three months later, not from COVID, but I think from a broken heart. She'd lost mm. her eldest son, uh, and I, I've no doubt whatsoever that she just lost the will to to live. Uh, and it was it was striking when we learned, as we did about Dominic Cummings and, and and subsequent events, how horrified we were that we applied the rules. We are literally. I looked at the the regulations to see whether I could go or couldn't go and do what I and yet others uh, you know, simply go through like a coach and horses and, and I think it's important I then met with loads of COVID families and they were all well you know virtually and they all of the same view that we were not listened to we weren't we didn't have a voice and and we were calling for this inquiry and and obviously we were desperately pleased when finally Eddie Hallett was appointed because we thought here is the time we will get the answer to some of the questions that we have. What sort of man was your brother? He was a Home Office interpreter, wasn't he? But oh, he's phenomenal. I mean, he was um, my family are from the northwest frontier of Pakistan, and he's a Pathan. We're Pathans, and the Pashto language is spoken by thirty odd million people, but little known. And he, apart from being a Home Office interpreter doing a day job, the rest of the time was uh, to keep Pashto music alive in the UK. He was highly regarded. And the other thing, Gabby, is I didn't know how much how loved he was until after he passed. Yeah. I think another thing we lost, and perhaps we haven't talked about much, is that we've lost a generation of leaders. 
you know, our elders, particularly, you know, I'm talking about minority communities, we sort of look up to our elders in a way that perhaps others don't. And we lost them just one go. Mm. You know, because we, we also know that COVID exposed a lot of health inequalities and people from minority communities. You remember how many doctors and nurses were dying from minority communities in the early stages, and how many bus drivers and everybody else. Another area we weren't really familiar with. Why is it? Is it something in our genes that means that we were more um, uh, accessible to, to COVID? And again, we hope the inquiry will find that out. And so there's so many questions that we would want to answer. And how do you feel about the tug of war we've seen over the last few days between government and the inquiry? Is this just part of the expected kind of to and fro before an inquiry starts? Or no, I don't think so. I'm not because uh, I mean, obviously I've been party to loads of inquiries, mm. Bloody Sunday, and uh, you name it uh, over the years. And the, once you appoint the inquiry head and, and and set the terms of reference, you let them get on with it. Historically, when people are reluctant to hand information over, it's because they're worried about what the information says. Indeed. And all it's doing is it's feeding this this view that um, there's stuff that we should know that we weren't told. Now, this inquiry obviously uh, is chaired by retired Judge Baroness Hallett with a remit to examine the government's response to and the impact of the pandemic. And it was set up after pressure from, among others, uh, the group COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice. Here's uh, Lady Hallett in October last year marking the opening of the inquiry. Millions of people suffered loss, including the loss of friends and family members, the loss of good health, both mental and physical, economic loss, the loss of educational opportunities, and the loss of social interaction. Those who were bereaved lost the most. They lost loved ones and the ability to mourn properly. The first section is on preparedness for a pandemic before COVID-19 broke out, and that starts hearing evidence this month. That bit may obviously be awkward for Jeremy Hunt, who was Health Secretary in the run-up to the pandemic. But it starts hearing from witnesses on government decision-making this October, and that's probably the trickiest bit for those still in government, including Rishi Sunak, who obviously was Chancellor during the pandemic, Michael Gove, who was one of the key COVID decision-making quad, um, as well as for Johnson. But hearings don't finish until summer 2026, well after the next election vaccines and COVID procurement among the last things to be examined. The inquiry has court-style powers to compel witnesses to testify and seek disclosure, what is what it's now using. It can fine or jail those who don't cooperate with it as a last resort. Gavin, why is the Cabinet Office resisting so hard here? Is, is there a principle at stake beyond not wanting to be embarrassed? There, there are reasons, but they're not good ones, in my opinion. The phrase you just used there, that this may be awkward for particular members of the government, I mean, that's not the point. I had to give evidence to the Grenfell inquiry. Mm-hmm. It was it was a painful experience going through the decisions that I've made, all the paperwork. I, I hadn't got everything right. But it's not about me and it's not about the ministers that were making these decisions in the inquiry. The reason you hold these inquiries is because something very has gone very badly wrong and people want to get to the truth of what happened, hopefully in the spirit not of holding people to blame, but learning lessons and make sure that next time, because there will be a next time, we get it right. Now, so what governments generally don't like is they don't like the private arguments within government before the government comes to what's called a collective decision exposed. So if you think back to the Brexit rows when Parliament was doing these humble addresses, making the government publish its private legal views and things of that nature, government hates that being exposed because it worries that if people know that even the private internal discussion is going to become public, then it will have a chilling effect on that discussion in future. And generally, that's a good argument. Mm. 
But occasionally something really bad happens. And we've just heard the Nazir's traumatic story of his family, which sadly is not unique, but is mirrored all over the country. And that, in my opinion, trumps those arguments and says that in this occasion, there are special reasons why we need to get to the truth. You know, I think that the government is in danger of getting itself into a terrible position where people will lose faith in the inquiry or the people running the inquiry will say, well, if you're not prepared to let us see the material, we're not prepared to do the job. Do you think it's odd? I mean, we're told that number 10 says there's been no formal conversation between Sunak and Johnson until there was one scheduled for this week, which I think has now been put off, um, about how they were going to handle the inquiry, which seems odd given, you know, both of their pivotal roles in it. Do you think this has been complicated by the sort of fraught relationships between the two regimes? There's, there's both an issue about who owns this material. Mm. So with Johnson's diary, the government owns that. With his private notebooks, they're his property. So there's a question of who is the right person to ask to release it. And there's then the arguments about whether or not legally it needs to be released or not, which you, you've touched on in your question. But I'm sure the awkward, the difficult personal relationships are playing a factor here. But anyone listening to this who, like Nazir, has lost someone will literally have zero interest mm. in that psychodrama. I mean, like, it's irrelevant. Get over it. The, the job here is to get to the truth. Nazir, as a lawyer, you're very familiar, obviously, with arguments over disclosure in court. Do you, does government even have a legal basis to resist here? I mean, it's set up the inquiry with the powers it has. Seems odd to me, that, you know, to turn around now and say, but we don't want you to, to use them. Well, I mean, Lady Hallett's made it very clear that um, she expects them to be provided to her because she has the legal basis to be able to do that. Lady Hallett's on, on sound ground. It's for her to determine and for the inquiry to determine whether something's relevant uh, and whether something should be taken account of. And that, that she can't do that unless she sees it. Have you ever come across her in uh, your, in your yeah. professionally? What's she like? A formidable figure, but really empathetic and really sensitive, really understands. Mm. You know, it's rare. I say this about lawyers generally. We're not good people, people. Uh, you know, we're, we're good process people. Most lawyers don't know how to talk to another human being, uh, you know, and I think, uh, but she does. And that's the thing. She's a people's person who really understands uh, what, how people behave and what people think and listens. But she's a formidable lawyer. We were really pleased at her appointment. But uh, as I say, we're, we're questioning a lot now. Uh, given the shenanigans over the last few days. All of this obviously means digging over things the current government would perhaps rather people forgot. Partygate, obviously, Barnard Castle, but also decisions in which Sunak was personally involved, like the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, pushing people into restaurants, which may or may not have helped the virus get going again, and the Treasury's fabled resistance to, to lockdowns. If you were advising Sunak now, Gavin, which areas would you be most concerned about or which areas would you be devoting most preparation to? I think if you look at the government as a whole, I think that the biggest vulnerability is in the autumn of 2020. If you're talking about politicians, and again, I just stress, I suspect Nazir and others like him listening mm. to this are not so worried about the reputation of individual politicians. They just want to know what, what happened. But I think my view would be that in the spring of 2020, the whole system failed. The advice to ministers wasn't great. The whole system was caught out. Whereas in the autumn of 2020, the government was given advice and didn't follow it. So that's where I think the biggest vulnerability is. And then I think as you go into 2021, the government did do a very good job on vaccine rollout. And I suspect, I don't, I'm not an expert, but I suspect that Johnson's decisions 
in July 21 and Christmas 21 not to lock down were broadly vindicated by what then happens. From a public point of view, obviously, the question is, if they're trying so hard not to disclose Boris Johnson's diaries, what on earth might be in there? A spokesman for Boris Johnson, I should say, stresses that, and I quote, Mr Johnson has no objection to disclosing material to the inquiry. He has done so and continues to do so. The decision to challenge the inquiry's position on redactions is for the Cabinet Office. But this is what Johnson himself said when cornered at an airport in the US by a Sky TV reporter. It is total nonsense and um, I find it extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, that these things are handed over by, I don't know quite what authority, the, the Cabinet Office or whoever, to the Privileges Committee and... Uh, to the police without any attempt to establish what these things actually mean or what they refer to uh, with me. Nazir, does it, what do you make of all this? Does it make you confident that the inquiry will get to the truth? Do you trust Johnson in that scenario? Is it an odd question? I find myself, it's an odd question to ask, do you trust Boris Johnson these days? But uh, Do you know, um, I trust Lady Hallett. I trust the inquiry TORs in terms of reference. I trust the people around her and the team that are doing this. They've got lots of experience. Uh, and I trust the media for keeping uh, keeping their feet to the fire, in fact, and holding their feet to the fire to make sure they, they work at some pace. So the parties, the, you know, the people involved, I'm not so worried about what they think because I think that at the end of the day, we'll get, we'll get to the answers. The only thing, can I just say in relation to what Gavin said about the autumn of 2020, I think as a bereaved family member, I'm really concerned also about preparedness, i.e., mm. um, you know, what, what, community testing was stopped on the 12th of March 2020 because we didn't have enough tests in the community and my brother wasn't tested. And there'll be others like that. How much anger do you think for the general public there still is around all this? I mean, for many people, the pandemic is maybe a, a painful time. They're not, not keen to revisit there's a sense that some people would like to just move on and, and forget and put it all behind them what kind of feelings do you think the inquiry evokes among the public at large nazir it's obviously going to stir up some difficult memories for lots of people we will have another one of these there, there is no doubt mm. in our, anybody's mind that there will be another uh, global pandemic whatever form it takes we don't know uh, there'll certainly be global crises and we need to have confidence that whatever uh, the government, our government and global governments do is the right thing and done in a timely way and ensures that we are kept safe. And that is what this inquiry is most about. Yeah, it's looking back, but it's looking forward. Well, at the end of the day, we want to ensure that our children or our children's children are going to be safe. Are we going to be safe in the future? And I, um, I, I think that's what this inquiry, that's I think what's missed in all the political machinations of the last few days, that we don't care. <laughs> we don't care how you communicated and what you communicated with and whether, what time you give it up. We want to know the sooner the better in the hope that we are kept safe in the future. Is that timely enough, Gavin, in terms... I mean, Sweden's already finished its pandemic public inquiry, published the findings. You know, in our case, I guess it will be 2027 at the earliest before you could expect to see a report that could be in the middle of another pandemic. There's two things here, isn't there? There's when you start and how long you take. Uh, we started this too late. Mm. The government should have got on and done it quicker. But once it started, 
taking the time to do it properly and go through the detail is the right thing to do. Um, so, you know, my, my, my answer to your question about timing would be to a degree that that ship has sailed because the government should have got on with this quicker than, than it did. And one of the one of the issues I have, and I'll say this as a lawyer because I've said it lots of times, is that everybody's going to get lawyered up. Uh, and when mm. everybody gets lawyered up, that's one of the reasons why it will take as long as it takes. And I think Lady Hannett could do us all a favour by by uh, literally saying, like, keep, get the lawyers out of court only when they're needed. Let's hear from the people who are who have the evidence. Uh, and I'll ask the questions. And I think that would speed things up no end. OK, let's pause here for a minute. And when we come back, we'll be looking at millennials and whether they hold the key to the next election. Welcome back. Now, new research from the centre-right think tank onward this week has shown that millennials, that's those who are now aged between around 26 and their early 40s, are the first generation not to turn more conservative as they get older. Traditionally, the young lean left and then that changes as they get closer to middle age. But seemingly that's not happening with this generation who were born somewhere between the 80s and the millennium. Gavin, why do we think this is? Lots of Tories, I suppose, would say it's that millennials haven't been able to build up assets they want to conserve, so they're not becoming more conservative. Is it that straightforward, do you think? Yeah, I, I think there's a combination of things at play. The first is the Conservative Party is pretty unpopular at the moment, so it's not surprising that there isn't a drift towards them in the way that you might have historically seen. But then I think there are some real policy issues uh, at play here as well. Um, when I worked for Theresa, she actually touched on this because the 2017 election, I think, was the first moment where you could see the beginnings of this trend. And she talked about the sort of British dream that each generation would have a better life, quality of life than the one that had gone before it. And that the combination of the crisis in our housing market, the costs of higher education meant that that was at risk. And so I think there are very good policy reasons why younger people might feel that they haven't got a fair crack, essentially, at the moment. And the Conservative mm. Party needs to get on and address that. Otherwise, it's going to have a very big long-term problem. You could probably add in their attitudes on Brexit and, and the decisions the government made in austerity in terms of where, it's, where it protected things and where it cut back as part of that as well. Does that ring true to you, Nazir? Yeah, all of that. My children are in their 20s, uh, so they are the group that we're talking about. And... They are concerned about the fact they can't afford a house, whereas, you know, my generation or generation before, that wasn't a problem or so much of a problem. Uh, how education, good point has been made. You know, I, we, I didn't pay for my degree. I didn't, I didn't have uh, tuition fees to worry about. I even got a grant. I don't know about you, Gavin. But um, now, you know, they, they're leaving university with £50,000 debt, and therefore they actually pay more tax than anybody else and uh and they're worried about the ability to be able to raise the money that they might need for a deposit they're concerned about the climate you know in perhaps ways that we aren't so the things that they are concerned about are currently not the things that they see the conservative party being the organization that they uh, have greatest confidence in 
What's in, I mean, what's interesting about this research, I think, is it's not just the voting preferences, it's the millennial issues, you know, being able to buy a house, cost of childcare, the stuff that matters to you when you're in that kind of stage of life you're sort of trying to get established. You know, those are all rising up the agenda now. It's not about pensions anymore. You know, millennials are the majority of the voting population in half of all constituencies now. They're about to outnumber baby boomers among the electorate as a whole. That shift's already happened in Australia and America, and we've seen it deliver more progressive governments there but I'm sure not sure that necessarily means Labour can kind of count on them being Labour forever one of these things this research identified is that millennials definitely want lower taxes that was more important to them than social justice and that's not that's not a very progressive take necessarily and quite add up in terms of what they want to see for public services I mean Nazir you're, you're Chancellor of the University of Manchester I, I wonder how much that's about student finances as you say this group has had very high marginal tax rates because of repaying student loans you know if, if they feel resentful about paying high taxes that there might well be a big reason for that i'm sure that's true uh, they they wonder how they're going to be able to pay how they're going to be able to save for anything mm. you know the marginal t t tax you mentioned is what maybe they would have saved towards a deposit uh, but they're now paying off their university degree so absolutely i i, I totally understand that except that i think the labor's problem is at the moment it's easy to oppose i mean gavin said it better than I, you know, it's a very uh, unpopular government. And so it's easy to oppose them. What they have to do is set out a vision about what will be different. They can't bank upon these votes coming to them. What you might have is young people being disillusioned and not bothering to vote at all because they, they think there won't be any difference to their lives. Do you think Keir Starmer's doing that at the moment? Do you think he's setting out enough of a convincing yeah, story? Obviously, I mean, I worked with Keir for five years, so uh, I know him relatively well, but this is his pre-political life. Yeah, I think Keir gets, gets that. I think he understands that, going back to the conversations I had with him back then, and I've had some recent conversations with him. But, you know, my point is that he understands that he has to set out what the world would look like under a Labour government. And, uh, and and he sees that actually as an 18-month project, i.e. what they will do from now on, rather than um, something that he can do just like that. Gavin, the um, the document or the report characterises uh, millennials as, as what it calls shy capitalists, suggesting that, you know, they've got Tory values, the kind of values that in the past might have might have pushed them towards the Tories, but they just don't like this particular Tory administration is the conclusion. Do you think, um, is that a little bit too complacent or do you think there's something in that? The truth is the electorate is not Labour or Conservative. Voters have a range of views, some of which are on the centre-left, some of which are on the centre-right. Neither party owns the electorate or any particular demographic within it completely, right? So I think there are things that you can see in this research that would make, if you're from the centre-right, as I am, that would make you think that a sort of small-L liberal centre-right party could, over time, if it can repair the brand damage that's been done, do reasonably well among this age group, but it has to listen to them about what they're concerned about. And, and as Nazir was saying, in the case of Labour, it's got to have policy answers about how it's going to tackle the housing crisis, how it's going to reduce the tax burden on them, what it's going to do to address environmental concerns. You know, they, they're reasonably internationalist in their outlook. So a sort of narrow English nationalism that parts of the Tory party sometimes seem to offer, that's not going to resonate with this age group at all. So if, if you're asking me, do the Tories have a chance with this generation? Of course they do. If they can, if they can address those problems, 
but they shouldn't be complacent and thinking that they're automatically going to come back to them once Labour get in power. I mean, you did mention the um, environment as being particularly important to this this age group. Design, do you think that the Green Party could be a viable alternative for millennial votes if it could show there was a you know a measurable point to vote in Green that it was going to get Green MPs into Parliament? I mean, obviously they do well in some parts of the country. Uh, I was quite surprised how badly they did in, in Brighton, for example, mm. uh, during the local council elections when I always assumed that Brighton was the green capital of the UK, so to speak. Um, I, I think the point that, that Gavin made about centre-left, centre-right, people want something something set out for them that will actually deliver. And, and currently they don't think, under the current voting system, that uh, voting for some of these other parties would make a difference. I think that um, if the UK had a Green Party like they have in Germany, it would have done very well in recent years. You know, I think if you think about the last election in 2019, where we were offered a choice between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, there was quite a wide space in the market. And in Germany, the Green Party is relatively centrist, um, whereas here in the UK, our, our Green Party is much more left wing. And I think that I mean, they did pretty well in the council. They didn't do well in Brighton where they've been running the council. But in some other parts of the country, they made quite a few gains in the council elections. But I think where they've positioned themselves on the political spectrum in the UK is going to place a limit on how far they can go. A more centrist Green Party, certainly if you had a different electoral system, I think really could do quite well in the UK. Well, who knows what new futures and new opportunities millennials will create for themselves. But for now, that's where we have to leave it. So thank you very much uh, to both of you. Thank you, Nazir. And thank you, Gavin. Goodbye pleasure you're welcome and thank you all for listening i hope you enjoyed today's episode if you did make sure you subscribe to politics weekly uk wherever you get your podcasts and even better leave us a review preferably a nice one this episode was produced by frankie toby music by axel cacoutier the executive producers are maz ebtahaj and nicole jackson this is the guardian 